this morning, Exodus chapter 5. And while you turn there, I'll, I'll remind you, we, we have a prayer time that's in between the worship services at 1020. We are currently praying for the Lord's guidance and wisdom with regards to facilities and property. Uh, we don't have any idea where the Lord might uh, choose to answer our prayer, but we're just continuing to pray for his help. Uh, we need that above all else. You'll remember chapter 4 in Exodus ended on kind of a, a high note. The elders and the people of Israel bowed and worshipped the Lord for his coming deliverance. It, it's, it's always one thing to believe the Lord when, when he makes big promises. It's another thing and somewhat harder when your conditions go from bad to worse. And that's what happens in the chapter that's before us. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the God, to the Lord, our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle. You're idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. 
and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, uh, it's a rich and full passage. We pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as we pray for that ministry, we ask that you would be willing to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ so that in him we might see and know the direction of our cry. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I had uh, just turned 16, and in Nashville that year there was a pretty significant snow and ice storm during the Christmas break. And so when they got the roads all cleared, I asked my dad if I could take this older sort of junky car that we had in my family out for an afternoon drive. It was an extra one waiting to be sold. I grabbed one of my buddies and he went with me and we went out down the road. Everything was going fine and we decided we would turn off and explore Percy Warner Park, which is kind of an old park in Nashville. The park's roads were paved, but they're pretty rough. And as we began to climb up the hill on this one-way road, there's an edge to my left. The road was shaded. Still a pretty good bit of ice on that road. And as I started to climb, the tires began to spin and the car began to shift over to the edge of the road toward the drop-off. I took my foot off the accelerator and stopped the car. It was bad, but I was, I was okay. I gave it a little gas to try to keep creep up the hill, and the, the car again kept sliding over to the left to the drop-off. This is getting worse. So I stopped the car again, I got out, and I observed what I probably should have observed a couple of hours earlier. The tires on this car are almost bald. They're worn out, there's no tread. And so while I travel up this untraveled road, still covered with snow and ice, I'm aware I'm not going to get up the hill. Now, at 16 years old, I was decisive, but not necessarily wise. So I decided to back down the curvy road. And so I let off the emergency brake, and as I did, the car began to roll backwards. Only it wasn't rolling, it was sliding. This time... Towards the edge of the cliff again. I can only tell you it's a miracle of God's kindness that the car stopped one more time about six inches from the edge of the road. So then I sat there for a long time in the car. My friend got out on the other side and he said, well, I, I don't really know. And I saw a house down there at the base of the hill through the woods and so That's my chance. I got out of the car and I shouted out to a truck as it pulled up. Hey, my car is stuck. Can you help me? And in a a moment that my friend would later laugh at and still laughs at today, the guy shouted back with complete certainty, no. (laughs) This is going from bad to worse. Eventually... And what I now see is the grace of God. My friend and I were actually able to reposition the car. And we backed the car down 
the hill somehow. I bet everybody in this room could tell a story of a time when things went from bad to worse. And the reason you could tell those stories is because life is really full of those kinds of moments. Which is why Exodus chapter 5 speaks so beautifully into this mutual human condition. And it tells us this, the Lord is at work on your behalf, even when you don't see it. Now, there's people over the years who have preached in this passage on the subject of labor. What do you do when you, you've got a Pharaoh-type boss and he, he's not going to ever relinquish and he takes away the resources? The man is oppressing me. But you see, I don't think this is really primarily about labor. It's about how you and I would respond in the midst of circumstances that we don't like and we can't control. How will you handle it when things go from bad to worse? I see four voices in this passage. The voice of the Lord, the voice of Pharaoh, the voice of the foreman, the voice of Moses. So the first two voices are asking a a question, whose voice will gain your attention? And then the last two voices ask, how will I respond when events in my life don't go as I expected? So we start with the voice of the Lord, the first part of God's instruction to Moses to speak to the people of Israel. That part went really well. Look at verse, uh, back at chapter 316, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. And he tells them where he's going to take them. And you come to the end of chapter 4 and the people believed and they bowed and they worshipped. And so initially the people of Israel heard the voice of the Lord and they responded rightly. God's people were, were moved by his promise to deliver them. They were moved by his compassion. Their, their hearts are bent toward his steadfast love. Why were they moved? Because it was really good news. I suspect you can relate to that. When you hear the the voice of the Lord and it brings you news that you like, news which comforts you, news that encourages you, well, that's good. That's good. I can believe the Lord. It's not a bad thing. In fact, that's the reason that he speaks with such tones to, to summon your heart that you might hope in him. But here's the problem that this passage addresses. Most of us believe the Lord. We just don't believe the Lord far enough. All of us want to believe that the Lord is at work on our behalf. It's much harder to believe the Lord is at work when you don't see it. When the circumstances that you face today don't make sense to you. That's actually when it's hard to believe the Lord. I suspect some of you might be asking that very question today. Lord, I want to believe that you're at at work on my behalf. You really are saving me from my sin and and you're drawing me near to you. I, I know that... At some level, you're growing me in faith. You're you're blessing me. You're working all things together for my good. I've read that. I just don't see evidence of it today. And I can't really see how any of this would ever fit together. The second part 
of God's instruction to Moses and Aaron was to take this word now to Pharaoh. The people of Israel heard it. Look at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God calls the Hebrew people to worship Him. And they want to worship Him. And this isn't a trick. This is God's way of offering a kind of modest proposal over the matter of ownership. That's really the issue at hand in the text. To whom do the Hebrew people belong? If the Hebrew people belong to Pharaoh, then they will have the privilege of spending every day of their miserable lives in backbreaking work under fear of constant punishment and death. It's not a great option. On the other hand, if the Hebrew people belong to this God, Yahweh, they will move out of slavery into worship. They'll move to a place of communing with the one true God. And he says, I'm going to give you even private property that you can't even imagine. And, it, and it's flowing with, with fruit, milk, and honey. And my ownership involves feasting while you stand over there in famine. This is a, a much better option. So I wonder if you might hear that the voice of the Lord in this passage is really a voice of delight, which hangs over the text and summons us with this ongoing offer of of grace. His voice summons you to embrace this relationship with the Lord, to believe in. When what you expected And what's currently happening don't seem to line up. Four voices whose voice will gain your attention. You have the voice of the Lord, and here's the voice of Pharaoh next. I don't know if you can tell it, but but, but like a spotlight, the spotlight of this chapter is shining on Pharaoh. Nobody speaks as much as him. And this is deliberate. So that you and I as readers feel the weight of suffering under his voice. He's the cause of the oppression. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. At this moment, the king of Egypt is ignorant to God's identity. But more than that, he's really defiant of God's claims. Defiant over the issue of ownership. Who owns the Hebrew people? Pharaoh says, I do. And yet in his his ignorance, he's actually introducing for us as readers one of the central questions of the Exodus. Who's the Lord? Who is the one true God? Who is the supreme deity who alone has the right to demand praise from everyone And so in spite of Pharaoh's sarcastic, rhetorical tone, he really introduces us to one of the biggest questions in the Bible. In fact, one of the biggest questions in the whole world. Who is God? Why does it matter? Here's how the king answers the question. I don't know your God. And I reject any claim that he has over me. 
can't wait to show you as we walk through this book. Because in the end of this book, Moses will know, and the Hebrews will know, and you and I will know. But perhaps more surprisingly, Pharaoh is going to know too. Who's God? Oh, he's the sovereign king. The voice of Pharaoh again, verse 5. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And then this command, no straw. Go get it yourself. You must still produce the same number of bricks. Then verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor and, and, and pay no regards to their lying words. They're idle. They're lazy. That's why they go to sacrifice to the God of the Hebrews. The NIV is almost humorous in the way it states this. Verse 17, it says, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. I wonder if you can hear the way the voice of Pharaoh reveals his heart. Number one, completely ignorant of his creator God. Though the creation testifies to God's existence. This king has exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. Not just plants and animals and insects, which we'll see in the coming weeks. All of the plagues of Egypt are actually targeted at Pharaoh's gods. But Pharaoh worships himself. And he would like you to do the same. Number two, when he hears the commands of this God of creation, he boldly defies the direct Order. And that is because God and His voice threaten something that Pharaoh sees as control. His workforce. You recognize how his heart is exposed in fear. You can hear it in verse 5. The people of the land are now many. Pharaoh is afraid and so he runs his slave drivers by fear. And then number 3, Pharaoh pushes the issue of ownership. And and so his pride is on display. Verse 1 says, thus says the Lord. Verse 10, the king responds, thus says Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh is making a declaration. It is my voice that matters. My voice is superior to God's voice. And then number 4, Pharaoh equates worship of the one true God with laziness. Almost sounds... Like the voice of Pharaoh is one of many voices who have simply echoed and parroted the voice of the evil one. You've heard those words through the mouths of those who reject God, who reject his Christ. Pharaoh's voice is actually their voice. Pharaoh's fears, their fears, his heart, their heart. And so the agnostic says nothing is known or can be known about the true nature of God or of anything material. And so I I don't claim any faith and I don't claim any unbelief. I'm just somewhere neutral. I don't know. And that I don't know, which appears on the surface to be somewhat humble, is actually a quiet defiance. His position only seems neutral. For the creation testifies uh, to God's existence. It even demands God's worship. Deep down, you, you do in fact know something about God. 
The Bible says that mankind suppresses the truth about him. Why? Because like Pharaoh, all of mankind is bent towards self-worship. And all those who listen to the voice of the evil one directly defy his, his order. Romans chapter 1 says God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they might hear the voice of the Lord, His, his summons through creation and the, the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ, to bow the knee to Him as Lord is to, to, to lose something of power and control. And isn't there even a cosmic battle today over the issue of ownership of the human race? God has spoken fully and finally in His Son, Jesus Christ, and yet the evil one counters with, with lies counterclaims to authority. And isn't it just like the evil one to equate worship of this God with laziness? Weak-mindedness. It's a crutch. I know you've heard this from secular scholars. Well, sure. Sure they believe it. It's because Christianity was designed for weak people. Worship a God you can't see. That's stupid. People are just too fragile to make it through life. Some of them just need help to to cope. We know that the voice of the evil one is out there, don't we? But as an adopted, beloved child of God, that voice should have no place in here. Is there any part of you that that listens to the voice of Pharaoh? Listens to the voice of the evil one? Perhaps you pretend to be ignorant of God's identity? Perhaps there's a spot somewhere in here where you're still defiant over His claims? Over you. And is there any place where you're contending with Him over the matter of authority? Whose voice really has power? Is there not some part of you that still hears the voice of the evil one and accidentally equates the worship and the rest of Christ with a kind of laziness? So you pile on work, upon work, upon work, and you chase this false, impotent God of wealth and success and respect. First two voices ask this question. Whose voice will gain your attention? At some level, we're always listening to one or the other. The work, the Lord is at work on your behalf, even when you don't see it. The voice of the Lord, the voice of Pharaoh. Now look at the voice of the foreman. These last two voices pose this question. How do you respond when events in your life do not go as you expect? When things should go from bad to good, but they actually go from bad to worse. Look at verse 15. 
the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. There's actually something very sad about this appeal. From a broken spirit, they come to renegotiate the terms of their captivity with an evil master. It's because they only see themselves as Pharaoh's servants. And so they say this phrase, your servants, your servants, your servants, three times. You belong to Christ, don't you? But I wonder if the words of the foreman sound familiar. God offers freedom for slaves. And he says, believe me and trust me and wait on me. No, no, I can't. I can't believe you, Lord, because my circumstances are getting worse. And, and I expected things to change by now, but nothing's changing. I wanted to follow you and I thought you'd bless me. I had good intentions, but you haven't delivered. Maybe if I go and I talk back to my oppressor, he'll be gentle to me this time. What a terrifying picture of, of sin this is. You are slaves to the evil one. You were oppressed in bondage. You want to follow the Lord. You liked some of what you saw and heard from Him. But if you do not get the results that you hoped for instantaneously, do you find yourself back in front of your old sins? Pleading your case, even as your suffering grows worse, and your oppression deepens and the shackles get tighter? Hey, anxious heart. Would you be a little bit more gentle on me this time? Would you let my anxiety finally solve something for a change? Hey, image on that screen. This time would you would you not let me feel so much shame and guilt? So much self-hatred. Excuse me, Mr. Idol of Control. If I can grab you a little bit tighter, if I can hold you a little more aggressively, will you this time not leave me so disappointed? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? When you hear it this way. Your past sins, your old slave master would love for you to come back to him. He'd love for you to swear your allegiance afresh. Promise to serve Him again. So that He could look you in the face and say to you, just one more time, you are lazy. That's what you are. You're lazy. You're good for nothing. While the voice of the Lord summons you with a kind of tenderness. Believe me. You can trust me. I'll be more satisfying for you. Oh yeah, you may not know what I'm doing moment to moment. You may not understand the story day to day. 
But I'm trustworthy and I'm taking you to freedom. It's when Moses and Aaron meet the foreman. After those wasted attempts with Pharaoh that you truly understand the issue. Look at verse 21. The Lord look on you and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. And what looks like an attack on Moses and Aaron, you actually don't even have to be a a surgeon of the soul to diagnose the cancer that's in their hearts. The foremen have belief, but they do not yet have faith. Belief simply says God exists, but faith says I will entrust myself to His reign. They've learned to use God's name. Now they're using it to club his servants over the head. They have no concept of what to do when the circumstances don't meet their expectations. What do they do? They actually do what most of us do. They, they go and they blame others. Never do this? When things don't go as you hope, You blame your spouse or your children or your roommates or your teachers or somebody else. Somebody's got to be on the hook. That's what people do when they believe God but they don't have faith. When you won't entrust yourself to the outcome of the king who really reigns. You have to look for somebody to blame while you suffer. But you notice who doesn't get any blame in this story? Nobody in the story, seems to blame the one to whom the spotlight is shining. Nobody blames Pharaoh. Nobody says, I wonder if this could be his fault. Could it be that when things in your life seem to move from bad to worse, that there really is a spiritual battle going on? There really is an oppressor who wants to get you so distracted blaming everyone else that you miss the true guilty party. You think Satan delights for you to blame others while you grow bitter at God and totally miss His involvement? What does genuine faith sound like in the middle of a trial? Father, this is not going well, but I trust you. I don't know why it's going so badly, but I will lean upon you. I'm just going to commit myself to your care because you've committed yourself to me. I trust you, Lord. I can't see the way ahead. But I know you reign. On the other hand, belief without faith ultimately has zero spiritual discernment. More than that, belief without faith has zero perseverance, no capacity to do such. And zero willingness to wait upon the Lord. What would it look like in your own life for the Lord to move you from a place of belief to a place of faith? To get to the master for help instead of going back to the slave master. To entrust yourself to God instead of blaming others. The Lord's at work on your behalf even when you don't see it. The voice of the Lord, the voice of Pharaoh, the voice of the foreman. We're going to close with the voice of Moses. Look at verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's not happening right now. It will happen again. You'll you'll find yourself in a verse 23 spot. You set out to do the Lord's will. You, You sought to honor Him with a particular area of your life, but ever since you started... It just doesn't look to your eyes in the moment like he is holding up his end of the bargain. God, I, I decided to come to college and, 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 and walk with you, but there is not more temptation, excuse me, there is not less temptation, there's more. I'm trying to trust you with my finances, Lord. I don't yet have peace. I actually have more fears. I'm trying to honor you with my words, Lord. I'm trying to, to, to control my temper, but, but it seems like everybody is against that goal. Circumstances seem to collapse on me. So it's true, there's a lot of ways in which Moses' words sound something like the foreman. But there is a difference, and this is what I would hope that you could affirm. Where does Moses go with his complaint? Interrupting Pharaoh. Interrupting back to the sin to blame others or renegotiate his terms with an idol that's going to kill him. Moses goes directly to God in prayer. Because this is not a flimsy God. This is not a God who's thin-skinned. And isn't Moses' question really just a question of timing? For since I came, you have not delivered me? God, I believe you're at work. I don't see you today. When will I see your help? Moses would like to have the situation fixed yesterday, which is exactly how you feel. As readers, you can't help but wonder if this isn't actually a part of how God is going to move Moses from a place of belief to a place of faith. So friends, when the spotlight is shining on the the Pharaoh of your circumstances and everything that you are looking at is declaring to you this is not going well, Where will you direct your cry? Where will you you, you state your questions of, of timing? You will find, I think, that the answer to the prayer that you ask is often better than the question that you're asking. Child, I'm going to make you grow from a general belief to a genuine trust. In this life, there's a lot of voices. Lots of people, lots of circumstances that will speak with a kind of authority in hopes of influencing your mind. And they usually have lots to say about how you can better your situation. The Bible says it's not really about fixing the situation. For those who are in Christ by faith, the Lord is more interested in teaching you to genuinely learn to trust Him. So that you have spiritual discernment. So that you have perseverance to stand in every circumstance. 
for the believer, there's really only one voice that hangs over this passage. And hangs over like an ongoing offer of grace. God's voice summons you. So that you can honestly say, the Lord's at work on your behalf, even when you don't see it. Let's pray.